0: Welcome to Episode 4 of the Bright Spots Podcast. I'm Jeremiah Witten, Program Specialist with the El Dorado Charter Selva. Today, we will be discussing the impact of teacher self-care, culture, relationship, and community building on student outcomes and staff experiences. Our guests, Troy Beyer and Maria Osborne, share unique insights for overcoming traditional as well as COVID-19-related challenges. We also pull back the curtain on applied behavior analysis, and the important role this methodology is playing for students in schools across California. Enjoy the show.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today, Maria and Troy. Uh, Could each of you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do?
2: My name is Maria Osborne and I'm the principal of the El Dorado County Office of Education uh, College and Career Prep Charter School. We um, are one of four uh, charter schools under the County Office of Education. My school is also a community school. So we serve very high risk students in this county and all across El Dorado County, which is a rural community.
3: And my name is Troy Beyer and I work for Literacy First Charter School. I'm the program director for special education and also our MTSS and RTI program. Um, we have four campuses, around 2000 students between our four, on, our four in-person campuses and our Freedom Academy homeschool program. Um, our special ed population is average to above average, 12 to 13%, depending on kind of what you're including. Um, I'm also a board certified behavior analyst and a school psychologist.
0: Thank you both so much for coming. Maria, as we approach this winter break, educators across the state are facing COVID stressors, um, staffing shortages, struggling parents, dealing with social academic learning loss all of this can really negatively impact teacher morale and mental health, but we brought you on to share some of the things that you are doing on campus uh, with your organization to promote self-care. So can you launch into that a little bit for us?
2: Sure. Um, It's interesting to ask that question. We had a staff meeting on Friday and the very first question um, posed to them, you know, I was kind of lay the foundation and break the ice is uh, what are you most looking forward to for this break? And, the celebrating of small wins is something that we look at. We do a plus delta check-in, and that's that's always about kids. And it's not just the teachers, it's the entire staff. And teachers said primarily what they were looking forward to was time disconnected. And now that we've had two trainings with Ricky Robertson um, regarding self-care um, and the recognition of the importance of it, People are, they're trying to define what that disconnectedness looks like. And as educators that lead with the heart, which is the primary core of how we function, it it is something you have to practice.
3: I, I just wanted to jump in. One of the things that Maria said that I think is really, really pervasive in the special ed world is the heart of the people that work in this part of education. Educators are a special set of people And I think that those that work in special ed is like another level of just heart. I mean, the the heart of the people that I get to work with is incredible. And what I've learned in the last five or six years being in leadership over in special ed is that the last thing that I need to do to motivate them to work harder is tell them to work harder. And one of the most important roles that I play as the special ed director is giving them freedom who take care of themselves, you know, I mean, in this day and age, if someone has the sniffles, they stay home. But I feel like most of the people I work with, they will work through any emotional challenge or any, anything, stuff like that. And so I've learned that one of my roles is to kind of get to know my staff well enough to look them in the eyes and say, what's really going on? Do you need a break? You, You need to dial it down. And eventually what I end up finding out is like, oh my gosh, I've got all this on my plate and this on my plate. And then I can help them process through, okay, how do you find that pressure release? How can we find assets to help you relieve your pressure to make sure you're taking care of yourself? Because I think we all know that the burnout rate in special education for special ed teachers is what, something like six to seven years, which is crazy.
0: 80% so, in five years, I believe, is what I've heard
3: yeah. last. And, and so as the director, giving my staff permission to take a break and then realizing, no, I'm 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 not gonna come down on you for not working hard enough. In fact, I don't know if I've just hired good people, but I feel like all the special teachers I've ever met are like this. They will work 80 hours a week at home if they, they are told to not to say, <laughs> when you go home today, just stop. You can just relax. Um, so anyway, for self-care, one of the, I think just giving our staff permission to do so is really important and getting to know them well enough that when you see them and look them in the eye through their mask, that you can see their eyes and see that you're really stressed. You need it. What's going on? You okay? Like, how can I help? Do you need a break? You need to take a half a day. We'll cover your role for you. Don't worry about it. It's okay. That's what I find myself doing often, especially in this COVID kind of world era.
2: Something that Troy, excuse me, Troy said, I think it's important to note that in my school, we are 23% uh, special education um, students. um, And we are also... Student Attendance Review Board, we get to SARB students, students released from juvenile hall attend my program, students that are in the homeless shelter attend my program and students referred by CPS. So even though we have 23% of that, um, we lead with how many undiagnosed children are out there and have PTSD from the trauma in their lives so that we treat all students as if they have special and unique needs. And like Troy said, we go by the mask on first in an airplane and just keep reminding people, I'll walk around and say, do you have your mask on? <laughs> As we're trying to unravel what's going on in some of our kids' lives. So I appreciate Troy's perspective.
1: Yeah, you guys both bring up a good point and exactly about what's going on. You know, They always say that all behavior is a form of communication. But Troy, can you tell us you know, how being a board certified behavior analyst or a BCBA informs your work and what do you see as the biggest challenge for teachers and parents supporting students with significant behavior needs you know it's it's interesting because we are all
3: heart or a lot of heart and it feels very mechanical to quantify behavior and that's what being a bcba teaches that's what being a, that's applied behavior analysis is literally taking human behavior making putting it into mathematical vocabulary and terms so that you can mark it down on paper and then basically take that data and use it to support a kid's increasing good behavior, decreasing bad behavior. It's kind of the the easiest way to do it. And so the hardest thing that I found as a a BCBA in trying to incorporate actual research-based behavior modification strategies with our staff is getting past the vocabulary. Years ago, when when I was doing psych assessment for a student that was in third grade, she was presenting with all of the, all of the things that would indicate that she has a specific learning disability in one of the areas of reading. And so we went through and I was doing a psychological evaluation. We're looking at phonological awareness, different phonological processing, different memory issues. Um, I did a full cognitive assessment, did a, did the CTOP, you know, one of the phonological awareness tests and, and, and I wasn't finding what I thought I was going to find when it came to reading ability. Now, because of my training as a BCBA, I do a ton of observation with my cognitive assessments or with my psyche thoughts. So I, st- I started my, evaluate, my my I started doing the in-class observations. What I realized by quantifying behavior and taking human behavior and putting it in very mechanical terms, positives, negatives, you know, taking all the heart out of it, is that this little girl who presented like she had a learning disability in reading, who was fail- failing writing tests. Um, reading extremely slow and had all the earmarks of, you know, let's say dyslexia or, you know, SLD or whatever you want to call it. Um, What was actually happening is that every time that she was struggling in reading or she misspelled a word or she did something that indicated she didn't read well, she was getting attention from the teacher. When she would do her assignment, she would go to the teacher. Is this how you do it? And then the teacher said, no, this isn't, and she would say, these ones are wrong, now go try to do it again, go back, and she would go back to her desk and do it again, come back, and she would have different ones wrong. And this happened over and over and over. And after I finished the observations and I went through and I put the whole report together, I realized this little girl had no learning disability. In fact, she was highly intelligent. What she had figured out is that the way to get attention, the way to gain access to basically the love of an adult, the <laughs> way to say it was by looking like she was failing in school. And so what we started implementing was during lunch, she got to come have lunch with the teacher. And when she would, when her, when her, her grandma that was raising her would bring her to school early, she could hang out with the teacher before school in the teacher's classroom for maybe five, 10 minutes. And then she could bring in some of her friends and have lunch with the teacher with some of her friends. And so That completely changed the entire academic picture. Magically, she's passing writing tests, she's reading extremely quick. All of the earmarked areas of reading disability went completely away because really to simplify it, this little girl who had a very, very tough home life needed a mentor, needed a hug. And so I use that story over and over and over with our entire staff, like teachers, K-12, all of our campuses. And to help, help them understand that by using the, the, what do you call it, the mechanical or non-heart or mathematical terms in ABA, it actually will lead us straight to the heart of what really is going on with a kid. And a lot of times when you figure that out and you start figuring out what's going on at home or you figure out you know, what's, what's truly going on, you can help a student realize how to succeed in life.
1: And Maria, you actually deal with the other end of the spectrum. You talked about it earlier. You know, a lot of times the students that you work with, it's the last stop in their educational journey and often coming back. And I'd love to hear more about just, you know, how that plays out or even just the heart of it with when it comes to supporting students.
2: I'll go with what we learned through COVID because we need to rethink what we're doing. It's, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a weird story. <laughs> it's about a meatloaf. <laughs> And this girl wanted to make meatloaf. And so she asked her mom how to do it. And her mom told her what to do and to separate it and put it in two pans. And she said, well, why do we put it in two pans? And her mom said, well, that's the way my mom showed me how to do it. So the little girl asked her grandma, hey, you know, I'm gonna make this meatloaf. Why do we have to put it in two pans? The grandma said, well, we never had a pan large enough to fit it in one. And I just feel like education kind of got itself in a box of how it was supposed to look. So I'll go, to go with what we did, Moises, um, uh, with what we learned through COVID. And what we learned is we needed to dismantle our thinking about how to truly really connect with kids because we were desperate to reach them and couldn't. And so we began something called student talk. And I will show how not only did this help the kids, but it helped the teachers. Oftentimes I hear teachers talking, they would talk about, they felt like they were working in a silo and they felt alone and disconnected. And what we did is we met every Friday on zoom and for 90 minutes did nothing but address every single one of our kids with the goal of no one gets lost. That was the goal. So no one did get lost. But what we realized is that we were helping each other understand what each other was dealing with when it came to certain kids. So that was this, that was the collateral win over that. And what, you know, to think about how that has impacted our school, we did not let that go. And now it's just expanded. And now we have parent talk and we have teacher talk and we have student talk. I hear organizations, a lot of times people will say, What is it that you don't like about your organization? And sometimes I would say at the top three is, We have too many meetings when I talk to my staff, I do a process where I check in with each staff member three times a year and, you know, what's working well, what's been a challenge, the what's working well for two years in a row, what's working well has been communication. And we have meetings. There's probably three or four meetings every week. And so as a leader, I've found that if it's substantive and it's relevant and it matters and it makes their job easier, uh, it's, it's necessary. So, and we all started out with student talk, and then I talked about a meatloaf, but <laughs> it's about how to think it differently and also to what is the why? You know, what is the why? And sometimes I think what we don't do is go back to the why. Why are why are we doing this? And then also why did it work? You know, and and how do we how do we keep this and sustain
0: it moving forward? I know a lot of that comes from the, the, the stress that's on us as educators, and our time is so intensive. It's almost like, well, if we put the fire out, good, right? And instead of thinking about how did it work? Where was the faucet? Did we really turn it on? And, and deciding that we're going to get ahead of those fires in the future, we're just like, well, I, is it Monday? Like, is it seriously Monday right now? right? And so we're just trying to survive. So I definitely love your feedback there as far as having those conversations with our students and our teachers and our administrators, the human element of that, whether it's face-to-face or through a mask or on Zoom, I really, really uh, think that's intense. Thanks for sharing that.
2: I think it's important. You said fire, Jeremiah, and that just made me go like this um, because um, seven of our students lost their homes in the Caldor fire, so in and among all of the layers of complexity with whatever traumas in their lives, with whatever COVID has laid on their shoulders as well, and whatever struggles in the community, um, we had seven kids lose everything that they had. And what I can say is one family did have to move um, to Texas um, to be with other family members, but the rest of the five are doing great. And I would they come up in student talk all the time. And one of the things that we did change this year is schools are much more than just educators. We're caretakers of the community. And this year we, I started an an outreach and resource specialist for students. And that person's primary job is to dig and find out what barriers they have, not in education, but what barriers they have in their own personal lives in order to be able to better serve them, whether it be clothing or um, glasses or um, a medical appointment, food, whatever. and that was done prior to the children losing their homes. And what it's done is it's it set us up to be able to respond to their needs. So it's just fortunate it happened in that way.
0: That is yeah. incredible. i'm I'm at a loss for words. Maria, this question is actually for both guests, but Maria, could you share some uh, school climate building or self-care, even behavior resources that our listeners might be able to? To look up online or get into if they're interested in what you've been sharing today.
2: We built into our plan um, the need for a mental health clinician. What she has done is teachers always had a question about what does what our um, crisis intervention thing look like, and that meant for other people, you know. So we got that done right. We quantified that and made that nice flowchart and everything. Um, and then when we turn it around and say, okay, what is what is my crisis intervention for my staff? What does that look like? And now it's come down to what is crisis intervention from peer to peer, colleague to colleague? And so as far as materials, we've just started to, with Ricky Robertson this year, look into self-care. Now, sometimes the people that need it the most, practice it the most, are the ones who are more re- most resistant to it. I don't need that. I don't need this support, that kind of thing. But as far as materials, right now we're, sticking, we're small steps, um, with Ricky, with Ricky Robertson, um, and with our mental health clinician, she has a process where she's checking in. She does it with her BCBA brain. You know, checking in on behaviors of staff members, how people are. Um, we talked about body language. You know, how to pay attention to crossed arms, flushed, th- you know, flushed expressions, and and we have to be very mindful because the same community that was affected by the fire was my staff too. So I had staff members living in hotel rooms with their children while one of their spouse is also a firefighter. So it's making sure that you are cognizant all the time, um, but then also to make sure I have a support system set up for myself where if people see me responding in a certain way, they have permission to say, what's going on? You know so I don't become removed from it. I'm part of it. A teacher put it this way in, a, in an email to me about a recent incident where a student ingested something they shouldn't have. And she said, thank you for always moving us in the direction of restoring a situation. I don't feel like a salmon swimming upstream anymore. Meaning she she sees our staff as moving together, not always in sync all the time, but still moving together.
3: For me, self-care is incredibly important. And just like it is, it is tough for me as a BCBA to communicate past a teacher or admins resistance to ABA vocabulary, self-care, the phrase, like sometimes that just sounds too floopy, but the reality is we all need it. It's insanely important. I'll transition to kind of the behavioral supports and maybe even expand a little bit on what I was saying earlier. I mean, one of the hardest things, again, that, that I've had to get through, get past with my staff is just the aversiveness or the resistance to changing vocabulary to more of a functional vocabulary so that we can figure out what is the reason why kids are doing things. I mean, often in the past, when when a BCBA has come into the classroom, because there's some kind of advocacy situation or litigious situation involved and they demand a BCBA comes in BCBA comes in sits in the back of the classroom, classroom observes the teacher is very critical starts using all of this very mechanical vocabulary that the teacher is offended by the administrator on campus is you know kind of thinking get out of here as soon as you can you're making my staff mad I mean and so and that is the general I think it's changing. I mean, obviously, um, Maria has a BCBA on her staff as well. I mean, th- th- this is changing, but I believe that historically, that is the feel that many educators have when a anybody that's saying, I do ABA or I have a BCBA walks on campus, is that they're going to come in here, be super arrogant, and tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. Then they're going to implement some strategy with the kid, and the kid's behavior is going to get worse. And I'm going to say, see, you did it wrong. But the reality is in statistically proven scientific driven um, behavior modification, when you start to modify behavior, the behavior will increase. That's going to happen every single time. And so helping my staff, teachers, kindergarten through 12th grade, understand that an extinction burst is expected when you found the right strategy and then to continue with that strategy through the extinction burst, that was really, really difficult until we started to have successes. And I can start to point to the successes, right? Do you remember this kiddo in this class? Oh yeah, I remember that. Do you remember when this happened? Yeah, I remember that. That was an extinction burst. Now look at that kid. Oh yeah, I have not even noticed. That kid's been totally fine for like two years. Now I have my special ed staff who are not necessarily you know, BCBA trained. I mean, they've received, we've had trainers come in, I've done trainings, but they're now using words like extinction burst, um, manned, tact, like all of these ABA terms. And I just start laughing because five years ago, they were fighting me on all this stuff. When I started telling them, no, 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 no. A positive reinforcement is this. And negative reinforcement is still a reinforcement, but it means you're taking away a bad thing. A negative punishment, you know, like you start getting into the vocabulary of ABA. They just kind of like, what are you talking about? You know, like stop it. However, continuing on and doing it, continuing to persist and do all this stuff has been very beneficial for my whole staff. And now they're preaching it to me, telling me, we got to find the function of the behavior. What's the function, you know, because you have five kids in a classroom who are all avoiding math for five different reasons. One could be because they want attention. They, they have a hard home life. They need someone to care. One could be because they're not very good at math and that's really hard. And it's easier for them to not do it than it is for them to engage. So they are causing a problem in the classroom. Another one might, be really, really inattentive, it's really hard to focus, and didn't hear what you said. You know, I like think you can go down the list, there's all of these different functions of behavior that will cause the same thing, but often an untrained teacher will just send all five of those kids out outside. Well, you just totally reinforce the kid that hate math, hates math. You mean if I just do this, then I get out of math, I get to go in the hallway, sweet. But then you take the kid who needs an attention, we well, just sent that kid out in the hallway by himself you know, that, that you've, you now made a situation worse. So, I mean, hunting for that function of behavior. And then I get, it is insanely important. And then helping the teachers and my special ed staff come along to where now they're communicating that. And it's becoming, it's then just become a school coach culture to where, when I stand up in front of our training weeks or our big staff trainings, where I've got a hundred staff in front of me or 150 staff in front of me, and I start using this vocabulary, like, oh yeah, I know. This and, and they're all communicating it. It changes the, the conversation it has helped our staff understand how to care about kids which was the opposite of what they felt was happening at the beginning you know you stop what you're doing you're just making, you're just making all this mechanical human beings aren't mechanical exactly they're not but the more mechanical you can make the behavior the more accurately you can define how to care about those human beings because every single one of them is different and i think one of the flaws that we have had in education is that every time every time something happens or something goes wrong, we have to create a system for every time this happens, we have to do this one thing. But what behavior or ABA has taught me is that every kid is different and you have to pay attention to each individual kid kid specifically. And if you can take data on each kid specifically and teach basic behavior skills, even a teacher can just observe a kid for 15 minutes in the classroom and be like, oh, this is your function of behavior. I think one of the problems that I'm seeing in the charter community in California right now is that we are too quick to jump on board with what everybody else is doing and saying that we need to be the same. We need to provide better education and specific education for our specific kids to need to continue the need to exist and to continue being the really customer service oriented organizations that we are. We are here to serve the parents and the families that choose to bring our kids here.
2: Uh, So you made me think of something, Troy made me think of something that we learned with Ricky Robertson. I think it was really good in our first session is that there is a defined compassion fatigue and a defined burnout. And you could hear this, even though we were on Zoom, you could feel this, aha, kind of go through my school about, oh, I see that's why I'm acting that way. And I think that that aha and the very first training um, people saw, even if they were resistant to self-care, because it sounds, um, it it has, has a connotation to it that some people think, oh, you know, that's, that's not for me. You know, I, I care about others, but I don't need to care about myself. Um, it was a very, it was a defining moment for us to talk about. And I really like what you're saying, Troy, about choice. Um, I was in the comprehensive system for 21 years, and this is my third year here. I wish I'd come into the alternative world sooner. Um, But some of the work that we're doing in our leadership is about people first. And so, and also connecting to our why. What is the why? We are here to serve. We are here to make the world a better place. Part of that is educating, and part of that is caring, um, and part of that is helping each other. Um, But the, the thing about the alternative program, even though we get those high risk kids that I mentioned earlier, we are also a school of choice. And right now I'm full <laughs> because it used to be, oh, I have to go there. And now it's, I get to come there. So we've changed the narrative um, based on our culture. You'd ask about culture early. We've changed the narrative to it's a place you wanna be so kids who never went to school are coming every day, um, and I, you know, and I ask the kids I, I, the same way I interview the staff. I interview the kids, you know. So what's been challenging? What's what's working for you? And more often than not, they're saying the school is working for me.
1: Maria and Troy, I mean, this is easily
2: my favorite episode. I just find myself leaning in,
1: and this wouldn't be a bright spot episode without this essential question of just what's one thing that's made each of you smile at work over the past couple of months
2: the connection Moises, I think just the, being able to say, you know, and I don't wanna use student names, but to be able to walk into a classroom and know every kid and know their parent, um, to be able to listen to teachers and um, they're sharing about their personal lives and asking them how they're doing. It's just that there's, there's that culture every, every day. So I think it's the consistency of, of joy and the consistency of heart Um, that helps sustain even in this complex time. So, and, and it's been complex for two and a half years now, but we're making it.
3: Truthfully, what makes me smile is how hard this job is. And the reason why I say that is because the trials that we go through and overcome make us better people. And if this job was easy, then people probably wouldn't need us to be there doing it. So the fact that, that this is hard, and I think this maybe comes on a specific day, that today's been a rough day and then I'm on this podcast, but the fact that this work is not easy and it changes every moment and every second we have to pivot and kind of figure out a new strategy to solve a problem and then to plan forward to continue that problem being solved. Um, when I stop and reflect, that's when I get a real smile. And so the fact that we get to do something that makes a difference in kids' lives and in their families' lives that lasts, that's that's where, like, the actual smile comes from. But some days, it takes me a while to get there. I got go get a mountain bike, ride about 20 miles through the hills, and then I get back and I realize, like, okay, I've detached a little bit, and I realize this this matters. This is worth it. You know, from trials come perseverance, and from perseverance comes wisdom. And uh, that is that's why we do what we do.
2: I think I heard in one of our trainings, um, what makes us good at our job is our heart and what makes this job so difficult is our heart, right? Yes,
3: 110%.
0: Thanks again to our guests, Maria Osborne and Troy Beyer. You can find all the resources referenced in this episode in the show notes below. To access our Strategic Behavior Intervention web module series, as well as a host of other special education resources, visit the Charter SELPA Online Learning Center under the Professional Development tab at our website, www.charterselpa.org. You can subscribe to the Charter SELPA Bright Spots podcast on the iPhone podcast app, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And please leave a five-star rating and review if you liked our episode today. The Bright Spots crew and everyone on the El Dorado County Office of Education team wish you a restful, well-deserved winter break. Thank you for listening.